This is the AMA Los Angeles podcast. Welcome to the AMA Los Angeles podcast. I'm Joel Metzger. This is part two of a panel discussion at General Assembly in Santa Monica called How to Find and Retain New Customers. The panelists are Anil Punyapu, Senior Vice President of Sales at Cvent, Ann Convery, Founder of Speak Your Business, Elizabeth Prim, Industry Director at Twitter, and Sean Kelly, Head of Sales at Spotify. Let's join the discussion already in progress. So we've touched on a couple of points that I want to um, follow up with. Um, with the advent of programmatic ad buying and other marketing automation, um, do we still need to hear from our customers, or is the cold data enough to tell you what you need to be doing for those customers? In other words, is it still important to talk and have a relationship? Uh, yes. <laughs> So all of our products are available programmatically, and my team's out there talking to the programmatic teams as well. I mean, it's just, it's a different type of client that you're talking to, but, you know, you need to be touching, I'm sure you guys as well, you need to be, you know, getting feedback from them, seeing how campaigns are going. Um, the scary thing about programmatic and for what we do, um, you know, our pipes are open and people can just start buying us um, programmatically. We set up a special, you know, PMP, private marketplace for them, or they can actually buy us on some of the open exchanges is the, the scary thing for me is if something doesn't work, then I don't, sometimes I don't know about it right away. You know, with a direct buy, they're gonna call me up and say, hey, something's not working here. So it's even more important, I think, in the programmatic world to stay on top of our, our clients and our customers and the programmatic teams that are buying our inventory programmatically. Um, it's definitely a big shift and change in our industry, but if you're not on board, you're gonna be left behind. Um, so we're, we're all over programmatic. Um, yeah, I, I would agree with that. That question made me kind of cry a little bit inside. Um, because, you know, not only is the trust element so important, but I think what we've also seen in recent months is the rise of uh, viewability standards and human viewability standards because programmatic was marketed as, you know, this amazing solution where by now, well, robots should be running all of our campaigns and we don't even need humans to run our marketing um, initiatives and um, there's I think a lot of uh, focus in, rightly so on where this inventory is being served and who is actually looking at it so I think there's there's not just the buying end um, but also the execution end of um, scale is great but again how how is partner X whether they're programmatic or not actually solving your business challenge. And if you can answer that, great. And if you can't answer that, I would argue that you should really think about your marketing mix and if they're really achieving something you're trying to do as a business as a whole and not just as a marketing work. Just to add on to that, I mean, we're in a unique spot where we're, we're an app, right? So we're logged in, authenticated user. Most of the programmatic buys that are done out there are in open marketplace where there's a lot of fraud. There was $22 billion worth of fraud in our business last year. And it's really, even with the verification services out there, they still can't guarantee that you're not going to be seen by, you know, a, a bot. And there's a lot of bots, a lot of them coming out of Russia, a lot of money, a lot of money in that. So, yeah, I mean, it's... It's a big issue for our industry as a whole to figure it out, and there's a lot of smart people trying to figure it out, but it's not something we're going to figure out right away. So if, if programmatic buying is a part of your media strategy, um, you know, know that you're definitely going to be buying stuff that humans are not going to see it. So you've got to make, 
either do specific programmatic deals with, with sites and or publishers or apps like ours where we know that there is no fraud or that you know you can develop specific white lists or black lists so um, you can protect your your clients from from that inventory but you pretty much it's pretty much impossible to do programmatic buying without getting fraud um, in the open marketplace so we can always talk to you <laughs> um, yeah I think it's um, in uh, in the business in the in the B2B space especially we've seen the pendulum swing right so there's a for a while it was like hey sales is king then it's marketing is king and then now somewhere in between and uh, it, it, I think it's just uh, uh, until we until AI comes in and takes over uh, which nobody really foresees happening for a while uh, you're not going to be able to figure that out and I think the more data that's out there and I love that like there's the more data that that's that's out there, the more confused the buyer is. And the more confused the buyer is, the more there's a need for somebody to clarify it for them. And the more that there's a need for someone to clarify it, the more there's a need to market the right way and the more there's a need for the salesperson to do it as well. There's always gonna be a human element to sales where you need to look someone in the eye, you have to have that trust. I don't care how automated or programmatic we go, there's always gonna be a need for that, you know, especially when it comes down to laying down a lot of money for something, so. I also think uh, people need to feel engaged. They need to feel heard from. They need to feel the engagement. So uh, in the, it's interesting because in the 20th century, statistics and data were king. I mean, people, customers became consumers and digits and eyeballs, and people were generally miserable. And Brian Boyd from Harvard Press wrote a story called On the Origins of Story, and Story is now back in the 21st century as the ultimate engagement engine until IT, I suppose. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's crucial. So I'm going to segue into CRM. Um, from AMA.org, and there was an article on AMA.org that was basically talking about in 2017, we will see CRM reconnect with its original purpose. Forward-thinking companies will realize the most important action that they can take is to invest in tools that will bridge silos, connect every touch point with their customers, from social media and the apps to call centers and face-to-face -face interactions, streamline conversations, increase value for customers, and build more meaningful relationships. With that in mind, um, can we talk a little about some of the CRM tools that you all are using? Um, and, and just talk to our audience a little about what you guys are using. So like many platforms, um, Twitter allows advertisers to import CRM data to allow for an email match to a customer, a hand raiser, someone that's already in your CRM system. Um, I think that is incredibly powerful when you can pair a customized message to someone who is, for example, about to turn in a car that's at the end of its lease. Um, you probably, as an automotive manufacturer, would like to invite them to buy another one of your products. Um, and you have all that data in-house. So it's, it's a very, and every social platform allows for this. It's not unique to Twitter. So um, the bridging of data from the marketer side to the platform side, what I've observed is often sometimes difficult for the marketing team because that data sits in a silo 
in a different division in the CRM group. And so part of the conversations we've been in is really acting as that conduit between various teams inside a company. And to Anil's point, um, status quo sometimes uh, is hard to break through. Um, but once, as an advertiser, you see the power of leveraging your own data, it typically becomes part of an ongoing targeting mix um, because it is incredibly effective. Yeah, I'll just touch on a couple things that we're doing. I mean, uh, being an app, so we have to do a lot of things that you know websites don't do, so device IDs and data matching, but a lot of our consumers, I'm sorry, I keep saying consumers, our customers, I think that's my third time. Um, a lot of our customers have their own you know, proprietary data that they wanna use on our platform. Um, so you know, we're in the process of doing a lot of A and B testing with different partners right now to see how we can ingest that so we can match um, device IDs um, or catch you know, emails. We can't do a, you know, an email match right now because you know, we're not a, a cookie environment. So we're exploring a lot of those things right now. I mean, I'll just say from a sales perspective, and you mentioned Salesforce earlier, I mean, I'm sure everyone in here uses Salesforce and we use it quite a bit um, for managing our entire business, our entire sales org for predicting revenues and, and all that kind of stuff. But from a consumer standpoint, um, and, and also from a, an, an advertiser standpoint, you know, we're, we're experimenting a lot right now with a, different, a lot of different partners. Um, to your point, it's just, it's, it's, it is difficult, but it's definitely something that a lot of our, our clients are pushing us to do, you know, in, ingesting their data into our data, you know, and, and seeing how we can, uh, you know, for an auto, for instance, you know, they have a ton of data on when someone is gonna be purchasing a, a new car, when their lease is up, um, conquesting, going against, you know, uh, auto intenders and marketplace, you know, the, the old adage with auto intenders, how many auto intenders are there in, in market right now? Um, if you asked, uh, you know, most, most people, you know, the, the numbers show like, what, 100, 100 million, but yeah, there's actually only like, what, 2 million or, or so people actually in market to buy a car. So it's also using the data in the right way and, and ingesting it, so I don't know. So um, the marketing cloud and CRM being part of that marketing or sales cloud, uh, I, I love that stuff. Like I've been a geek of it for the last, let's say, seven, 10 years. Um, so I know the stories of Salesforce, of Microsoft Dynamics, uh, we use Salesforce, Microsoft Dynamics, Oracle, all these wonderful tools, right? And for the longest time, they were in the B2B space or just dealing with big corporations and trying to grow that. Uh, in the last, I'd say, two years especially, there's just been this huge wave into the B2C side, right? And one of the big acquisitions last year was Salesforce buying a company called Demandware. And all of a sudden, everyone's like, wait, why are they in this consumer space? It's because they have so much data, and every CRM is this treasure trove of data and they have data about what you're buying from a business perspective right but now they're saying hey you know what i know where that david is that's a procurement or he's the buyer of some kind of software uh in the marketing space but how do i really understand david well let me get his consumer data let me start to see what he's doing on the consumer side, right? That's what Salesforce is really excited about. They just launched this thing, uh, it's like a data analytics tool called Einstein because they wanted to pull all of this in and start to really make, understand the buying decisions or the behavior of David, right? Microsoft went out and spent, what, 26 billion to buy LinkedIn? 
because they're trying to see what you're doing from a B to, from your business, from your business perspective to understand that part. And that's just one piece of what they have. Because they built this really cool CRM tool called Dynamics. Some say it's better than Salesforce, but it's not catching on. It's not catching on because they don't have the rest of those pieces. So that's kind of like a little background. I think there's going to be a lot more acquisition in this space. I think there's going to be a lot more integration of, uh, of systems. And everybody's trying to be the full platform for this. Uh, and so the pendulum swings from, hey, I'm going to be the full platform to I'm going to need to be the underlying layer so that I can plug any and all softwares that I need to to be able to work on it. I generally, I work with people on content. So what I do is, that, that they say to me, you know, my, our narrative isn't working, our follow-up isn't working, we're not, we're losing customers, we're losing clients, and so I develop the content to keep them using uh, neuromarketing, really, principles. That leads into my next question, which is perfect. So, um, according to Bain & Company, it costs seven times more to attract new customers than it does to keep them. Additionally, if you retain just 5% of your customers annually, you can generate up to 125% more profits. So I want to talk about retention for just a little bit, and then we'll open up to Q&A. And we've heard from you about pitching and how to attract customers. Can each panelist tell us a little bit about retaining the customers that you have? Liz, that uh, if we had only 5% retention, we'd both be out of jobs and out of business. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know what your retention rate is. Ours is probably around like 40%, which is still kind of low, I, I think. Love to get it higher. Um, you know, that's across the board with, you know, thousands and thousands of, of customers across a lot of different tiers. Um, you know, there's obviously a lot of, you know, customer service that, that goes involved or goes along with, you know, retaining customers, but it's all about, you know, did you, you know, did you actually help them, you know, fulfill what their goal was, whether, whether their KPI was just, you know, they wanted to drive someone to a microsite or, you know, the ultimate goal obviously is always sales, but in our world, it's, you know, it's a little bit different. Sometimes it's, it's viewability, sometimes it's, um, you know, actions on a website. So, you know, obviously if you're staying close to that during a campaign um, and then we, sh we both go in and we'll go and share, we'll do post campaign reports. And, and talk through it and hopefully find some nuggets that they can learn from. But if we're not meeting their KPIs, we're not gonna get bought again. So, you know, for us, it's all about hitting those KPIs. So I think what's most important is making sure that you're putting something in front of them that actually is gonna work. And you know what works, right? You know what you're selling and you know what's worked for past campaigns. So, you know, again, that shiny new product that, you know, your product team's putting in front of you might not be the best solution. So you gotta be, you know, obviously, you know, being very consultive because if you put that new product in front of them and they buy it and it doesn't work, they might not buy you on the next two or three campaigns. So um, for us, you know, customer service is huge um, to try to, and we monitor, you know, we look at our retention rates, you know, I'm looking at my team's retention rates on different clients. Um, you know, a lot of the bigger ones we do, you know, multiple, you know, deals with over the course of the year. But if, especially for, if we're bringing in a new client, a new piece of business, we're even more focused on that one than, uh, than our existing ones to try to keep them in the fold, if you will, right? So, I mean, it is basic stuff, but, you know, so many people kind of lose sight of it and forget it, right, to, to just meet that objective, but also to, 
you know, go in and I always say, if you get the opportunity to go in in person and present your whatever the campaign results were, do that. Don't just send an email with a couple bullet points of how it did. I mean, get an appointment, get, get on the phone, or actually go in there physically with them and, and share with them what, what happened. It always has better results. Yeah, echoing everything Sean said, I think uh, the client renewal process starts the day the campaign launches and after the, the same day the sale closes. Because to Anil's point earlier about the sales experience or the service delivery, I, I think the service delivery combined with did you do what you said you were going to do? Did you solve the problem that I'm trying to solve? Even if sometimes you don't exactly solve or hit a benchmark that an advertiser or marketer might want, if they have a good service delivery experience and they trust you, they will come back to you. Sure. I've seen kind of two models work in terms of customer retention. Um, and there's a third one that's not a good idea, but a lot of companies do it. Uh, the first one in terms of customer retention is uh, where the company is focused less on service and more on inspiration, right? Because if there's an inspiring company uh, whose product you're buying and they continue to inspire you on a daily basis, you're going to continue to buy it or you're going to continue to be part of that story. Everybody wants to be part of an awesome story. Everybody wants to be you know, wants to kind of follow the leader in, in some ways. I think that's one model I've seen very successful. Companies do it. You can, you can, you know those companies, they bring cool things to life. They're talking about the next generation. They're talking about the next wave. They're driving to that part, right? And Salesforce.com is a perfect example of a company that inspires on a daily basis. And they say, we're going to, you know, they started this idea that you know, say, no, say no to the cloud or say no, sorry, say no to the standard software, say no to the standard way we do things. They inspire with how they invest in nonprofits and foundations, and it's just an inspiring company, and people want to be part of that story. Um, their service sucks. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, right? It sucks, and, and if you want to, they'll tell you, you want a good service, pay for it. Pay for my person, pay for that full person, right? And you're like, what? I thought your software was supposed to be easy. It's not, right? So uh, what's going on? But you're inspired by it, and people continue with it. And, the second way a lot of companies focus on retention is by having a lot of different hooks into them. Right? So if you've got one product, then you've got only one hook, and they can cancel. If you've got multiple products, or you've integrated it into their overall process, and there are those connections built in, then it's really hard to rip it out. Right? It's the same thing as in like when you think about any component there. And I think those are two ways that I've seen very successful companies, and even from marketing and sales perspective really focus on driving that. How can I drive multiple solutions or how can I continue to focus on an integrated experience to drive that? The third part is, which I said is not a good idea, is you just buy out your competition. And a lot of companies do that, right? So they get to a size and then they basically go out and buy number two, three, five, or whatever be it. And then they're the undisputed leader. So they are, there's nobody else left. Yeah, and I think to, to everyone's point, I, it's very interesting that how you retain them is much closer to how you attract them today because you, we don't have customers for life. They don't say, fine, I'm here for 25 years. I mean, that, you, have a, you have someone, who, a customer who has infinite choices, um, who is used to uh, doing their own research, who, and who also has a very short attention span and needs to be edutained and infotained. And so the attraction process is very has to continue. I call it ethical seduction, but it has to continue. 
Great. Let's give it up for our panel. That was awesome. Thank you. Okay, so we are going to open up to Q&A, but while we're doing it, uh, we are the American Marketing Association Los Angeles. We'd love to get some data from you. So if you wouldn't mind during the process and while you're hanging out here through the rest of the evening, point your browser. Um, to the URL on the screen. It's a very quick survey. We'd love to get some information from you guys, so help us out. Okay, so now that I've done that, our survey pitch, and uh, Question Pro may be a sponsor, so let's use them. Um, let's open it up to Q&A. Who wants to go first? Raise your hand. Okay, here we go. And each person, please wait for the mic. Hi, I'm Dawn, and uh, this may sound like it's not a real question, but it actually is. Your McDonald's story instantly made me wonder if you were sending information to the White House, letting them know they might have a problem. This um, well, I would defer to my legal team. <laughs> <laughs> but the process is the same, right? So are, are you asking about where we send data? How do you choose if you chose McDonald's? Yeah. How do you choose who to send information sure. to? So in that example, they were a data enterprise customer. So we had a, a, a scope of work outlined with them. Um, and we have a division of, of Twitter. Uh, it was a company called GNIP, G-N-I-P, that basically ingests the entire fire hose of tweets and is then able to dissect of the billion tweets sent every 48 hours, what is that actually about? Ultimately able in that example to tell McDonald's, your fries are soggy. Um, so I, I'm going to decline getting into legal detail um, because I did go to my- I work for a law firm, that's probably a good idea. My legal, I did go to my legal training. Uh, but I would encourage you to read, uh, read press on Twitter. We have a very strong stance on protecting user privacy and um, have uh, declined to send information when asked. So, Next. Rachel. Um, since you guys are all in um, a managing role and you have to manage a sales team, how do you guys work with your sales team in terms of um, engaging them and just what do you do internally to keep them excited about working in sales because not everybody likes it. <laughs> um, I'll kick it off. I think as with customers, it's really important to understand the motivations of your team members. And everyone, if you ask them outright, you typically don't get the right answer. Um, but understanding why someone comes into work every day and how you can craft a more compelling environment based on those motivations, I have found to be incredibly successful as a manager. Yeah, I think, you know, playing off that, I, you know, for me it's getting, I get pretty involved with, you know, what, what motivates them, but also I, I think it's very important. I think a lot of managers lose sight of just giving them a little bit of praise or recognition um, to their peers. Um, even in a small office, our office or my team is about 25 people. Um, you know, I think it's very important to, on, on a weekly or 
you know, on a weekly sales call to call a few people out and recognize some nice performance, whether it's someone who's, you know, at the lowest end of the totem pole supporting a team or if it's someone on a sales basis, but giving them those little wins to go along with some of their big wins when they're, you know, closing some big deals. So showing them that you're really invested in them as, as a salesperson, you know, for me as well, I, I like to get out in the field with my team, um, you know, time permitting. Um, I was out on three calls today and I, I had so much fun. I, I love being out with my team and I try to provide value with them as well. But those are also opportunities where I can observe them in the field so I can see what they're doing right, see what they're doing wrong and, and help them grow that way. I do a lot of role playing with my team. Um, so, you know, we'll do objection handling, you know, for like an hour on, on you know, competitive set or, you know, what are you hearing out in the field? You know, what are people pushing back on? You know, you know we're a music play. But I'm trying to convince the industry that, you know, we're an everyday play. We're a people, you know, there's not another app that people are on for two hours a day. Sorry. Um, you know, <laughs> Snap, the average person on Snap is like 25 minutes. We're two hours. So, you know, trying to change that perception of the industry to get away from, you know, oh, we're going to put you in our music marketing bucket. We're, we're everyday bucket. So, you know, working with the team on that kind of thing. But I think you, as a manager, you need to be involved. You need to be out there with them. And you also have to find what motivates them, right? I mean, everybody on my team has a different personality or a different, you know, career goal, career objection. Um, so I try to get pretty granular with them on where they want to go and help them get there. If you build that trust with that your team member, not, not only like I mentioned earlier with your customers, you're going to have someone that's going to do whatever they, they need to do to get the job done or hit that goal because they, they, they want to please you as well. So there's kind of that aspect that, that I like to instill with my team. Uh, I've got three different uh, sales teams that I oversee um, and, and play more of like a GM role with them. Uh, but in, and the reason I bring that up is because there's one that's like a really enterprise team that's got 15, 20 plus years of experience. We've got other people that are straight out of college that are, this is their first job in sales and they're really kind of trying to build out. Um, so from my philosophy is kind of three parts. Like one is, um, Salespeople really respect effort, right? So I have to work harder than them, or I have to, yeah, and I think that's, in a lot of ways, they watch for that. And, and I think the millennials and kind of like the younger generations, they're looking at that. They're like, how much time is, how quickly is he responding to my stuff? How much, uh, how much effort is, the, is going into the process? And I think that's, that's an unfortunate uh, uh, part of being in sales where you don't turn off at nine o'clock or 10 o'clock or something else. And they, they want their pricing, they want their responses, they want it now because they're, they're hitting their quotas and things like that. I think that's one part. Um, within the, I think the second part, which is very important, is just you have to define and build your culture. Um, that culture becomes uh, your primary driver. And in software, I think more than any, any other industry, um, when you break it down to it, we're not doing anything really cool. We're selling software that helps with basic processes or things like that. But most successful companies have somehow created that into this culture of, of awesomeness, right? And every company has created that. Zappos is a great company that he's written a book on, it's called you know, Pursuit of Happiness Almost, and it's like you're selling shoes. Like, I mean, how did you design that into a culture that everybody thought was really, really cool, uh, right? When there's a whole show that talks about how being a shoe salesman is probably the worst job ever. Uh, and so, you, but you gotta think like, this is what companies do in the software sales because they have to figure out a way to design a culture and then inspire everybody as part of that culture. Um, I think the third part, which I spent a lot of folk, uh, time on and we, which I, I think you were talking about, which is uh, 
education, right? There's a constant education, and, and people find education invigorating. So I'm constantly out there trying to get new information, relevant information sometimes, or just even cocktail conversation information that my team is going to find valuable and is going to find somewhat entertaining, sometimes educational, sometimes inspiring to make them do their job the next day. Because you're right, because as a salesperson, making those calls every day and doing that same thing every day is so hard. Um, and you gotta figure out a way to kind of inspire that. If you invest in them, they'll, they'll be more invested in your company and your org and your sales team or whatever you're leading. So you gotta invest in them. In, in Another question? She was first then. Hi, this question is for Anil or anyone else who wants to weigh in. Uh, earlier in the discussion, you gave a great description of the transformation between marketing and sales, how marketing helps you nurture the lead up until they're ready to buy. Have you seen a similar transformation post-sale in terms of how marketing is supporting all of your loyalty programs and things like that? Yeah, I mean, so what, what we've learned about customer loyalty is the buying experience and, and I think Liz uh, spoke to this. The buying experience does not stop when the sale is closed. Uh, in fact, most software companies on the, on the enterprise side have converted this concept of account management to customer success management, right? And I think this is what you're talking about, which is the day the deal is closed, then the real selling starts. Why? Because the pure valuation of software companies is on client retention, right? when a company gets a 10-time valuation or 20-time valuation, you're seeing that their clients are just staying there. And it's not just about them staying there, it's if you get, get them to stay, then you know that the additional product you're selling them will give you that exponential growth that you're looking for. So from that perspective, uh, the next step after that is where you're seeing customer success groups, which are marketing runs, to messaging just for customers to ensure that they see what's coming down the pipe in terms of next functionality, to seeing what is the value of what they're doing. And a lot of the data analytics is, how can I take that message and in a standardized manner, customize it to each client? And that's where you're starting to see so much of this focus on uh, data analytics tools like Tableau and Domo and all these wonderful tools because you need that data constantly to resell to the client every step they go through. And you see all of this focus on these big conferences, right? Every software company is now starting to do a big customer conference. The customer conference is to retain and drive additional sales out of existing customers. If you go back 10 years ago, they were called user conferences. Now nobody calls it a user conference because it's not about continuing the usage of the tool, it's about selling to the customer to continue the relationship and to expand the relationship as well. Hopefully that answers. And am I correct that Jay Leno is headlining C-Event Connect? Yes. Yeah. We're hoping people still recognize who that is. But. <laughs> My question is around getting past no and uh, how you each respond to rejection. I think, we get, I think we all get no, even with a very popular music app. Um, I think a lot of the initial no you get is not, you gotta dig deeper on why that no is. Oftentimes for me, you know, 90% of the time when someone says, 
no, they're not interested or, oh, that idea is not good for me. Um, it's not, that's not the actual answer. And when you kind of go around that objection and kind of dive a little bit deeper, you'll find out it's something totally different. So for me, I think it's always important to really qualify what that no is because, again, 90% of the time, it's not, it's not a straight answer. They're, you know, oftentimes, oh, the budget was cut. Bullshit. Budget wasn't cut. There's like 20 other things that happened there. Um, and it's up to us to kind of get, get to the bottom of it so we know, A, either we can rescue it, right, or we can solve what, what the actual problem is. One thing that's frustrating our industry is, you know, oftentimes the KPIs that are on the RFP aren't the actual KPI that they're actually looking to fulfill for, for the campaign. And you don't find that out till after the campaign. Oh, you, you didn't hit this. Well, that wasn't on the RFP. You know, so again, I think a, a lot of it is really digging deep. And I know that's maybe a little bit of a broad answer there. Um, but for me, it's always, I always try to, if someone's saying no, or if there's an objection to something I'm saying, you got to dig. Usually it's like maybe six or seven questions that you'll, after that, that you'll find what the true answer is. Um, and again, not all of our clients are going to answer that. Some will just be kind of hardcore and just say that answer that, you know, uh, I know they're kind of bullshitting me on that one. Um, but you got to dig, dig deep around it. Uh, I don't know if that helps, but you know, a lot of time for me. What I've seen is it's, it's just not, not true what they're saying, you know, and you got to dive a little bit deeper. Uh, maybe it's someone in their org that is saying no, but, you know, a lot, a lot of times it's not, it's not the true answer, right? Uh, when I work with sales teams, the, the, uh, there, is a, there is a real no, and that's usually hidden. Uh, this, is, this is my classic experience, but you will get a flurry of no's, like snowballs, but only one's got a rock in it. And your job is to find out which one has the rock in it. Um, and it's usually an, an, a nervous tick response. No. You know, and uh, a lot of people stop there. But if you, if you, if you dig, to Sean's point, if you, you have to dig um, softly. And you will get the real no. And that's when you can answer it. Another question? Logan. Wait for the bike. Uh, to a lot of people, sales is a dirty word, uh, especially to uh, most people I'm talking to. I'm in sales, right? <laughs> and unless you're a salesperson, right? So you might have to think about to a, a day where you weren't uh, working for a well-known company. What's the most successful way to get somebody's attention to get to that meeting? Again, assuming that uh, the name doesn't sell itself like most of your companies. So... Um, so I, you know, it, I'll tell you an experience with my uh, mentor uh, at my company, right? So, and I've been at Steven pretty much since the beginning, so I've known the organization. And uh, we were calling on Monsanto to try and sell them our software. And the guy basically got on the phone and was just rude about it. Right? He's like, no, I don't want to hear about you. You keep calling me. You're sending me emails. I, I don't like this. You know, this is not how you'd sell, blah, 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 blah. So... Uh, my mentor got on the phone, who is now the president of the company, and, and basically said to him, I'm trying to understand where this anger is coming from. So, like, well, you send me emails. So, well, that's how we're trying to get your attention. And, he's, and he said, well, I hate salespeople. And he said, I'm sorry to hear that. Do you say that same thing to the salespeople at Monsanto when they sell? And you can imagine, right, it pissed the guy off. Right, because, and, and he further on to say, because 
my job is to introduce a software just like your Monsanto salesperson's job is to sell something that pays for the for everybody's uh, paychecks. And it was an amazingly uh, important point. And he said, well, I don't like so many emails. Then he, he turned around and said, I understand. We'll stop. When can we set up some time to sit down and talk to you? Right? It switches it. And the reason why I say that is it's an important story because um, you know, we're not selling uh, something crappy. Right? Sometimes you get stuck in the job. Maybe it's a boiler room. If you are, I'm sorry, you should leave. But if you're not in a boiler room, then chances are you're selling something because it's a value add to the customer. And it's our job to be able to describe that value to them, right? Uh, and as long as we're doing that, there's a lot of pride in sales uh, because we are either helping the top line, bottom line, helping a company be successful in what they do. And I think that's a very important point to kind of highlight as part of the sales process, right? And that's one of the things I teach all my sales team. Like, it, this isn't about what you thought about. And then the other part I tell them is uh, sales is 90% science and 10% art. All we hear about salespeople are that cheesy car salesman that we hear about, and that's how they sell, and that's what we talk about, right? Go to a car dealership today. Go find that cheesy car salesman. I will pay you if you find one in your first 10 meetings. Half of the time, they're just ignoring you. Right, because they're getting their leads off of the web. They're already managing all the process. They're listening to the people on TrueCard. They're responding. They're like, well, you walk in and you're expecting that? They're not, right? Um, to answer your question, that was like a long-winded answer because I wanted to kind of bring that out about sales. Uh, the primary purpose of our job is to disarm the prospect, right? Every prospect starts with the concept that sales is a dirty job. You're going to sell me something. You're going to make me overpay for it. You disarm that concept from their mind the sales process becomes easy, right? And half of the time, I will start a conversation with, I'm not even here trying to sell you anything. So if you're thinking that I'm gonna sell you something, that's not, right? And I just want you to understand, if you don't respond back to me, I'm gonna call you or probably call somebody else in your organization, which scares the shit out of people. Why? Because if you ignored a good opportunity to improve your company, and it went to your boss, and I tell your boss that, by the way, I reached out to Sean and he didn't respond back, the boss is going to come ask you, why didn't you listen to this guy? It, I think it's a great solution. Right? So then they're like, whoa, wait a minute. Let me respond back to you. Uh, there's a, a guy called Teak Falcon Napier who's done studies of stress and as they relate to sales. And there are five states that we all walk around in. Apathy, power, apathy, power, power, stress, and stress. Most of us walk around in power, which is I'm fine. Uh, when people say, you know, how are you? You say, I'm fine. You don't tell them about your hangnail or your, you know, your teenager on, at risk. <laughs> um, and no one buys from power. People buy in power stress. So the purpose why I, why I work with the old brain is because you need to move people from power, a power base to a base of power stress, which is an unstable state. So I'm stressed enough to want what you have, and I'm powerful enough to make the decision, but I'm not sure. So it's unstable. And it, that's, that's, you know, that's what I do, but that's the purpose of um, moving people into that state where they can then make a decision towards you. So I've been in your shoes. I've definitely sold unknown companies, startups, along with a long list of the other companies that he said in the beginning. Um, and it's really hard sometimes to just get that meeting, right? That meeting is the win. Not, it's not actually selling the product. It's getting that meeting. 
Um, and you, you have to try to provide some type of value in, if you're using an email, um, I still like to pick up the phone and call, but if you're using an email in that first sentence or two, you need to say something that is gonna get their attention, whether it's about something, a problem that you solve for one of your customers, or if it's something that you trolled on the internet and you found out that they went to Michigan and so did you. Like you need to, you know, that's what he was talking about, connecting with them initially. But if, they're, if they have to read a long paragraph, and again, make it short, but I always pick up the phone and call them as well, usually at the end of the day. But if you're gonna send someone a blind email, like why not give them a phone call as well? But there's gotta be some type of value in that email or why would they wanna read it? They're gonna feel like their time is totally wasted. So really quickly in that email, you gotta put something in there that's of value to them to solve what their business need is, um, you know, or you're not gonna get a response. Again, they're getting hundreds of these a day, right? Depending on who you're calling on and what your industry is. So there's gotta be some value there. Um, it's that old veto book, you know, you know, very important top officer pretty popular like 20 years ago. But you, you, know, you have to have some value in your initial outreach. But I like picking up the phone. I tell my team to pick up the phone. In our industry, everyone's doing email, so your competition is not picking up the phone. Pick up the phone. People actually, whoa, someone's calling me. Most people put their cell phone on their email address. So guess what? You got them at home too, folks. Why not call, why not call them? So to add to what everyone said, um, there's all kinds of sales training and sales methodology out there. Um, it's not new, but I'm a big fan of the Challenger Sale, and it was, it's a book. Um, it was written by uh, an organization called the Corporate Executive Board that does surveys of um, hundreds of, of major companies, and the premise is essentially there's five types of salespeople. There's the relationship seller, there's the product seller, there's three other sellers that I can't remember off the top of my head, there's a the problem solver, and then there's the challenger. And the concept of the challenger is that you actually educate yourself enough about your client or your potential client that you can come into the room and add value to the conversation about them such that when it time, comes time to talk about you, they're already leaned in across the table because they know that you're there because you're legitimately invested in their business. Um, and in an inside sales environment, for example, that might be hard to do every single time, but I ask my team every time we go on a meeting, why are we meeting with this person? What are we getting out of this meeting? What is our next step before the meeting even starts? There's, to Anil's point, there's that 90% science um, that makes sure that once you do get the meeting, even if that is the first win, that you can then immediately establish trust such that maybe they don't buy from you today, but they've already, in the back of their head, know that they're gonna call you back when they have budget or they have a need or they have a situation where they go, yeah, you know what, that guy, he knew enough about my business, I need to call him and ask him what we should do in XYZ scenario. All right, well, I'm in a power stress state, so I say yes. Let's give it up to our panel. You've been listening to the AMA Los Angeles podcast. For more information on the American Marketing Association's Los Angeles chapter and to find out about upcoming events, follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. This podcast was produced by Joel Metzger and Icebox Logic.